Are you in college or know someone who is? The Thomistic Institute Study Abroad Program is now accepting applications for the spring semester of 2025. Live steps from the Colosseum with like-minded students and explore the ancient and medieval intellectual tradition of Rome at the Dominican Order's Pontifical University of St. Thomas Aquinas. Don't miss this life-changing opportunity. Limited spots are available. For more information, go to thomisticinstitute.org slash Rome. That's thomisticinstitute.org slash Rome. Welcome to the Thomistic Institute podcast. Our mission is to promote the Catholic intellectual tradition in the university, the church, and the wider public square. The lectures on this podcast are organized by university students at Thomistic Institute chapters around the world. To learn more and to attend these events, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. What brings me here is my crazy intellectual journey. I started off as an economist. I was also sort of a pagan secular type with no idea that I was going to become Catholic at all. Um, as an economist at Harvard, I went into economics because I wanted to make the world a better place by creating great economic policy to lift the poor up out of their misery. Um, and I learned a lot as an economist, um, but while even at Harvard, I was, had a feeling that its heart was misplaced, uh, that there was something about the human condition that went missing in the economic way of seeing the world. Um, while again, having a lot of value, I didn't know how to sort it out. And um, so I ended up going off to teach at a liberal arts college and uh, teach students supply and demand, which I thought was perfectly good for their souls. Um, <clears throat> I had a crazy conversion out of the blue about 15 years later, um, the best thing that has ever happened in my life. But all of a sudden, I found myself as a Catholic in a Dominican parish looking at a stained glass window of Thomas Aquinas. Um, and after a few years of that, I felt called by God to quit my job, my tenured job, my corner office with a couch and a view, um, and go back to start over and to study theology. And my original intention had been to study theology since that was the one true path to happiness. Um, but literally nobody who met me and heard my background would let me get away with it. They were like, you have to tell us about just wages. You have to tell us about usury. What do you think about Catholic social thinking? And uh, I finally said, uncle. And, uh, what I, and what allowed me to say uncle, though, was I had no interest, and I still don't, in trying to sort out usury. It's a very complicated question. It's a really complicated question. Um, what I did find, though, in Aquinas is a way of thinking about human life in general that made sense of what economics is supposed to be about, that gave meaning and structure to economics. And this was, was a spectacular uh, insight to have on how this all fit together. So my book is about that, and this talk speaks out of it. So it's speaking out of a theological framework. Um, I know that at least some people in this room will not share this framework, uh, so I will describe it as I go. Um, but what I want to do is talk about the problem of economic inequality from this theological perspective. And I'm going to argue that it changes the way we'd look at it. And I think it changes in a way that's going to allow us to better address the real evils that are associated with it. Now, I should say this talk, which I have given in other places, I think it's a good talk, we'll see, um, is written for an American context. All of my examples are kind of come out of America. And I've been talking to my hosts for the last hour a little bit, and I think in Ireland things are going to be rather different. So I hope 
during Q&A, we'll have a chance to think about whether what I have to share with you about the American context has any application in Ireland. Okay, that said, um, in April 2014, Pope Francis tweeted that inequality is the root of social evil. Um, so, supposed to be a provocative claim. And you might think, well, now Christians and Catholics should uh, roll up their sleeves and tell the world to worry about this widespread evil. The thing was, in 2014, Pope Francis had to stand in line to say that economic inequality, the rising thereof, is a bad thing. Um, that same year saw the publication of Thomas Piketty's best-selling book, Capital, um, that argued that rising economic inequality was a real problem. Uh, just two years later, in 2016, Bernie Sanders ran an improbably strong campaign for the Democratic nomination for the president uh, on the strength of there's a real problem with economic inequality. Um, and I could go on and on over the, over the five years following that. There was just an outpouring of books, many of them from economists, about this problem. So given that economic inequality already has plenty of standing as a moral issue uh, in, in, in the secular world, um, one can ask, what does a Christian ethicist have to contribute? We already know it's a problem. So raving a flag saying it's a problem doesn't add anything. Okay. The question turns out to have even more bite, though. If you pick up scripture and start reading through it about the problem of economic inequality, you're going to find very, very, very little to say. That has little, there's a few passages that you could maybe read as an argument against economic inequality. What you will find is an overabundance of passages about the problem of economic poverty. Christians are definitely supposed to have a special concern for the poor, and you can't go five minutes in scripture without tripping over your obligations to care for the poor if you happen to not be poor. But the problem of poverty is not the same thing as the problem of economic inequality, which is to say, from the scriptural point of view, so long as you're taking care of the poor, it does not matter how much more you have than they have, so long as they have enough. Okay. Um, the reason this is significant is from an economist's point of view, a standard issue, garden variety, Harvard-trained economist would say something like, I'm not sure why you're going on about economic inequality. What we care about is the poor. And it may well be the case that the way to lift the poor out of poverty is to let the market do its thing. And that may well widen inequality, but if the rising tide lifts all boats, mission accomplished, we've taken care of poverty. Okay, so the question here is, is there any reason why we should worry about economic inequality independently of the strong concern we should have about poverty? Okay, so I want you to hear me in that, because a lot of the objections people have is about, well, we should care about poverty. I'm like, I'm right there with you. The question is, what should we think about inequality? Talk has three parts. Uh, and I have written this talk uh, presuming a mostly Christian Catholic audience. Um, so part one is a warning to my uh, fellow believers um, about not just entering into secular debates in order to take sides. Um, a lot of Christians, it won't surprise you, assume that when it comes to secular debates about income inequality, that Christians should be on the side uh, that cares about it, um, and in particular cares about it in a way that wants to use government programs to alleviate it, to get rid of economic inequality. And, <clears throat> and my argument is going to be, uh, the secular debate actually is more complicated than you think, but more importantly, if you enter into the secular debate on secular terms, you're importing the assumptions of the secular debates. And those assumptions themselves, I think, actually lie at the root of the problem that we have. 
Um, and so you're missing, by just signing up for one side or the other, you're missing a chance to inject a really theologically informed analysis of the situation that should actually bring new insights that are not available to a secular audience. Okay. Um, bah, bah, bah. The second thing I'm going to do is go ahead and develop this theological analysis of an economic inequality. Um, and it's going to center on the proposition that's the heart of all my work, which is if you want to think about economic anything, you have to start with thinking about what is the proper role of wealth in a life well lived. How much money do we need to be happy? I'm going to be challenging our modern assumptions on that quite strongly. Um, and I think we have to if we want to overcome these other economic problems we have. Uh, and then the last section of the talk, I will walk through uh, three things where my thinking about this issue, I think, are different from what you would find in a secular approach. Okay. So the dangers of approaching the issue of economic inequality from a secular point of view. Um, the first danger, there's going to be two, but the first one is you're going to sound really, really naive. Um, a lot of people want to come in with their Christian sensibilities and argue for basically the left. They assume that the left is on the side of caring about reducing economic inequality, making things fair, just, nice, and equal. Um, the trouble is, to take that point of view, is to misunderstand the content of the debates in secular terms. So the debate, this is really crude, but the debate would go something like this. We should let the market run on its own because, A, that's the best way to generate in, um, prosperity, which will lift the boats of everybody. Um, and yeah, so if you really want to help people at the bottom, the best way to do that is through letting the markets run. But you can also even make from the right pro-market argument that that's actually the best thing to do for equality. If you actually care about equality, notice that markets come with a fair amount of competition, and that competition will tend to, to um, equalize or level profit, profit rates and so on and so forth. Um, and when you do see inequality, growing up in the market, so one business gets really strong, powerful, crowds out everybody else. Um, that may be down to the fact that it holds a monopoly, and maybe there's something the government, you could argue, maybe should do something about it. Um, but often, if you look more closely, you're going to find that a lot of that is actually driven by the fact that the uh, players have gotten a hold of the government and gotten the government to legislate in certain ways that are beneficial to them and are generating the inequality themselves. Um, I'm not here to advocate for that position. I'm just saying that people on the right can have a principled argument saying the best way to go against inequality is actually through the market, not around it. Okay. <clears throat> so, so the debates could best be understood, not debates about whether we should pursue more equality, but how we should do that. Um, and let's see. I want to make sure my time tracks out right. Okay. And I, I just cut quickly to the chase. Um, let me give you an example of, 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 of where it can be hard to tell whether the inequality being generated is coming from market forces or from competitive forces. So in the United States, um, there was a big push. We're always wanting, the people on the left always want to raise taxes so they can redistribute it more fairly, which is a good impulse. Um, and Amazon, which some might argue has fairly large economic power, um, decided to come in to the government and argue that the government should impose sales taxes on internet sold goods. And so if you looked at it on the surface, you'd say, Amazon, 
they're good players because they're going to they're advocating for a policy that's going to hurt them and they're doing it for the common good and for the just and for economic justice and all these good reasons okay that's what it looks like but if you look a little bit more closely it turns out what amazon is doing is arguing for this tax because amazon is very large and for them their little team of lawyers can easily handle all the paperwork that would come from paying the sales taxes that are individual to each of the 50 states. They can handle that. Who can't handle that are the small ma and pa internet startups who, if they're hit with the thing of having to send out returns to 50 states and all the rest of it, would go out of business. Okay, the law passed, they went out of business, and then Amazon rode to the rescue to all these little startups and said, don't worry, you can still, still sell on the internet. You can become one of our associates, sell through our website, we'll just take a cut and all will be well. So that's an example of the actual force of the inequality or the economic injustice being hard to disentangle. Is it market, is it state, is it both? Um, and in fact, if you're paying attention to these debates, you'll notice that people on the left and the right when addressing these issues seem to be meeting in the, meaning in a different place, um, and they're worried specifically about crony capitalism, the rising tendency of powerful firms to get a hold of the government apparatus and turn it to their own goods, and then there's a synergy that develops between the two. Uh, in the fallout to the financial crisis, you saw that most acutely. Um, they all lined up to write new legislation to stop this from ever happening again, and the legislation just happened to be very favorable to the financial interests. Okay. All right, so that's one reason why you should, should not enter into secular debates to take sides, because the sides are not clear. The second, though, is more important. The second reason is more important. And the reason it bothers me the most is it's insidious. It's very hard to see. Uh, and this is that the secular concerns about economic inequality are rooted uh, in some assumptions about the nature of individuals vis-a-vis -vis society and the role of material wealth in a happy life. And these assumptions are problematic from a theological point of view. Um, and then I'm also going to argue that not only are they problematic from a theological point of view, that those assumptions themselves, if you, cash, if you play them out, are almost certainly why we have a problem with economic inequality. If you live in a society that takes these assumptions for granted, you're going to live in the world we live in. Okay. The best way to see this is to consider John Rawls. Um, he, he's one of the most influential philosophers on this subject and his major work argues uh, that we should very much worry about economic inequality as a social and political matter. Rawls argues that fairness arises as an essential issue in social justice um, because of the nature of the social problem. So he argues, why do we come together in society in the first place? We come to society together in the first place because individually we're all better off if we live in a society. This is just the old idea that if we have division of labor and trade with one another, we're going to be a lot more prosperous than we would be if we went off into the woods by ourselves and tried to hammer out a living. Okay. Um, so we all instinctively know that it's way better to get a job and work for somebody and make some money and then buy things on the market than it would be to try to make a living for yourself by yourself in isolation. Just think about how good of a standard of living you could try for yourself if you were out in the woods by yourself and then compare it to what you have now. And, okay, so we come into society because it's beneficial to us as individuals. Um, but now the social production, because it is bigger than what we could do as individuals, means that we have a social dividend. And so the social problem is how to share that dividend fairly. 
And then Rawls will go on to argue that if we were willing to think hard about it, we would realize that we would want to identify ourselves with whoever it was who was at the bottom of that distribution. And we would want to arrive at policies that would make that person as well off as possible. Okay. Um, I'll save you the large apparatus you used to get you to that result. But it's an argument that we're going to tolerate inequality only up until the point where it allows for that worst off person to be well off and not tolerate any inequality beyond that. Now that sounds like a pretty good position to take. It seems to care about the people at the bottom. Well, it does. Okay, so that's good. Um, and it is taking on board that there's something about free enterprise that generates prosperity. So you're going to tolerate at least a little bit of inequality because it might actually be good for everybody. But I want us to take a closer look at his background assumptions. First, we are primarily individuals. We came into society because that was in our own interest. And then when we're trying to divide up the social spoils, we care about who gets what. And particularly, we care about how much do I get. Okay. Um, and once we concede that what really matters is who gets what, it's not clear where you're going to get that moral force for people who have gotten their share and more to voluntarily give up more of it for the people on the bottom. Because they've been told that their main premise in all of this is to try to make themselves better off. Okay. Uh, to maybe see this a little bit more deeply, we're, going to we're concerned about fairness as this abstract principle. And we're going to have this abstract concern for the people at the quote-unquote bottom. But compare that to the church's view about what this, and so the common good in this world would be a common good where everybody was more or less doing okay. But as individuals, the church has a much more organic view of society. Um, we're inherently social beings. My well-being is interdependent with your well-being in a way that is much more profound. Um, so let me give you two examples um, of a world that would come, that would look, would be more in line with what the Christian view of what a society is. Um, one comes from a guy, I don't think he's Christian at all, Robert Putnam, a sociologist, had put, came up with an article in the New York Times uh, called Our Kids, describing his world in Ohio back in the 1950s. Um, so he was in a medium-sized town in Ohio. And there was like one high school. And everybody in the community, regardless of what they were in the income distribution, everybody in the community regarded those kids at that school as our kids. It's the name of the, the essay. Such that in one year, the star quarterback of that team came from the wrong side of town. He came from a poor family. He was a talented football player. He was also talented kid, but he had no opportunities. And so the citizens of the town collectively decided to put together a scholarship for him because he was one of ours, right, and send, send them off. That's, that's a concept of society where there's a thicker sense of our responsibility to each other. Okay. The other example I use, and I made this up, so, um, is um, think about families and the issue of fairness within families and whether it, the main principle is egalitarian distribution of resources or so on. So um, imagine that there's a family in which there's one child, I'm going to call her Sophie. Um, Sophie is a talented musician. There's a bunch of other kids, say four or five. Um, and the family is looking at their kids growing up and they realize they have this gifted child and they want to do for her what they can to like nurture and cultivate her talent. So they might properly choose to send some more of their resources towards Sophie to get her the piano, to get her the music lessons, to get her what she needs to develop her talent. Okay. If we use the Rawlsian lens, this is clearly unfair. She's getting more of the pie than her siblings are. 
But the other way to look at it would be that she's their Sophie, right? So they are going to be sending Sophie out into the world and are going to be able to right, celebrate with her as she has her successes, that there would be this communal spirit behind it. It's just a little bit of the social imagination that I would like you to have as I continue this talk. Okay, so the first complaint is, on the secular view, we mostly think of ourselves primarily as individuals and are worried about who gets what. The second backdrop assumption, though, is that what really matters for these individuals is their material flourishing. We're in a pluralistic society, so we do not want to impose on anybody some idea about what a good life entails. What we do want to say is everybody's got their different ideas, their different dreams, but money is going to help them pursue them no matter what. And therefore, all else equal, more money is always better. Okay. So when John Rawls starts thinking about equality in society, he thinks primarily in terms of economic equality, how to divide up the pie when he's thinking about material resources or pies. Okay. So um, in this kind of a world, uh, we would start saying, yeah, there's really major problems with economic inequality. Um, and the problem with Bill Gates is that because he has billions and billions of dollars, he's hogging too much of the pie. What goes missing in this account is um, having billions isn't good for anybody. There's no actual real good to Bill Gates by being a billionaire. Um, the Bible and the church tradition have long warned against the idea that wealth leads to happiness. On the contrary, it's viewed as a trap. Um, the rich have many concerns about losing their wealth. They're so busy, worried about their wealth, they're not looking at their neighbors. They're losing that sense of sociality that's a major source of human fulfillment. St. John Chrysostom um, cites the ancient wisdom, and this was not even peculiar to Christians, that the best definition of wealth is the person who has what he needs, not the person who has a lot but wants even more. On the Christian view, the billionaire Wall Street guy who's desperately scrambling for another billion is actively poor, whereas the person who's teaching first grade in a small town but has enough to meet their needs and is doing something fulfilling might actually be rich. On this account, wealth is good insofar as it serves a good life, uh, but because our material needs are finite, so too is our need for wealth. Aristotle has a good analogy for this, which my friend St. Thomas Aquinas happily borrows. Um, wealth is an instrumental good. It's good because it supports the things that really, really matter. Um, another thing that's an instrumental good is medicine. Medicine is really good insofar as it supports health. If you have a headache, how many aspirins do you need? Bottle says two. Okay. So, because medicine is an instrumental good, Bottle says I need two aspirin, that's what I want. Do I want five, ten? I've got a really, I don't, right? I want two. And if I happen to have 20, that other 18 would be available for anybody else with headaches because it's not going to do me any good, all right? And then the move is to say you should think about wealth in exactly the same way because it's instrumental. So in the modern world, we tend to think how much I have determines how much I'm able to buy. And on the ancient view, you should say, how much do I need in order to live becomingly? We're not talking about bare bones minimum. What is a fitting amount for somebody in my walk of life to have? I'm a single professor with a kind of psychologically disturbed dog. I need X amount of money to make this all work in a way that's fitting. And then it, I need that much money. I definitely need that much money. But if I happen to make, as Notre Dame kindly makes possible, I happen to make more than that. 
that money is properly like superfluous. Um, it's like water to me. If, I, if I'm really well adjusted to this, I know what I need, I've thought about it carefully, and if Notre Dame's gonna pay me $10,000 a year more than that, that's $10,000 that goes right out the door to some other need, okay? That's the big inversion, okay? And if you accept that, and we can certainly talk about it during the Q&A, because not everybody wants to accept that. Um, if we can accept that, uh, then the problem of income inequality looks rather different. Um, it could be, and especially if you're looking in America, which is really quite wealthy by historical standards for sure, and by global standards, um, our debates about income inequality could be very much like the debate between people who are saying, well, that guy's got 20 aspirin, this other guy's only got 10, let's fight about it in a world where nobody needs more than two. Why is economic inequality actually a problem? Because I actually do think it is. Pope Francis really did tweet, economic inequality is the root of social evil, and he's on to something. But if you take the time to actually read more of Pope Francis, if you read Francis more carefully, what you're going to find is that he really, really focuses on two problems. The first problem he worries a lot about is exclusion, and the second he worries a lot about is exploitation. So he's talking about economic inequality, he's talking about these two particular problems. Okay. So what I want to do is give you a brief, hopefully three-minute pressy of my book about what a well-ordered society looks like from the point of view of Thomas Aquinas. Uh, and then I'm going to use that to talk about the problems of exclusion and exploitation. Okay. Um, trying to think how much of this I can cut. Okay, we already have a big chunk of it. We already have the two main pieces, and maybe that's going to be enough to get us where we need to go. Um, first of all, we understand that we're social animals, and we really do have a deep invested interest in the common good as being more than just our each individual doing well, but there's some kind of collective understanding that we want flourishing. And in that world, if I see my neighbor suffering, that hurts me as much as if I see my brother suffering. And my own happiness depends on making that person happy also or helping as much as I can. Um, but the second one is, in this Thomistic world, we would all understand that wealth is 100% ordered to these higher goods, and we would all have a satiable or finite desire for it. Okay. And in that world, if you say, Mary, I would like you to help out with people who are less well, at, less, uh, well off than you, I would say, no problem. Number one, that's superfluous wealth to me. I don't need it. It's not a sacrifice to give it up. Uh, and number two, it actively makes me happy to see other people doing well because they're part of my own good. Okay. We don't really live in that world and there's a lot to be said about what it would be like to live in the Thomistic world. But um, with that really brief setup, we can talk about Pope Francis's two complaints. Number one, exclusion. The biblical condemnations of excessive wealth are often tied to concern for the needy. Um, but alongside that, in many passages, is a concern that the wealth not be used as a social wedge. So there's a lot of worry in the early Christian communities that the rich members were not only neglecting their poor brothers and sisters in church, but they were like coming to the front and socially segregated, segregating themselves uh, from the poorer people. Um, <clears throat> so, and this, and this, and actually a lot of secular people are onto this idea. The part of this pursuit of wealth actually isn't about getting bigger flat screen TVs and larger houses and all the rest of it. That actually a large part of the draw of trying to get this unending amount of money 
is to socially distinguish yourself. Um, the idea that our wealth seeking is largely about status seeking uh, has a long and venerable history. St. Catherine of Siena identifies the vice of greed with the vice of using wealth for status seeking. Uh, in the secular world, Bernard Mandeville, you should read him because he's just funny. Um, for him, the, his premise is that if people are just full of vice, it will actually lead to a lot of economic prosperity. So that's a simplified version of it. But in describing the vices he sees, he's like, you know, the banker guy isn't going working really, really hard to make a lot of money just because he wants a lot of money. He's working really hard to make a lot of money because his wife is nagging him like crazy that she needs enough money to buy the hat that was going to make her the envy of all of her friends and make them eat their hearts out. Um, that's really what the wealth seeking is about. Adam Smith picks up on this theme in his theory of moral sentiments. Um, he's got a famous passage, and I won't read it to you, but all the toil and bustle in the world, he says, what is it about? can't be about wealth because the poorest people in our society, they have full bellies, they have a house, they have their basic needs met, just like the king. That's not what it's about. All that toil and bustle about is about the social distinction. If my dress is of the finest quality or whatever, I'm sending a signal and you all will look up to me and that's what I really want. Um, okay, and he says, it's not just the incentive to get rich and get that distinction. We, above all, fear being despised, which is what happens to the poor people. And notice that you, this is where the exclusion drops in, that the real insidious nature of economic inequality is as an excuse to look down on the poor, ignore them, and just kind of shun them from society. Okay. Um, John Ruskin uh, gives an even darker take. He says, why do you want to have a lot of wealth? There's only so much stuff you can have. The reason why you want a lot of wealth is because it will allow you to employ people to be your servants, to work for you. Okay. And the problem with an egalitarian society is if everybody is a millionaire, you will not be able to hire anybody to come and fix your toilet when it goes bad because millionaires don't do that. So in order to have that command over other people, you need to have more money than they do. Rising tide lifting all boats has nothing to do with the game we're playing. The game we're playing is I want more than you have so that I can command your attention and I can command your labor for my own purposes. The next section of the talk, uh, still on this topic, is in the United States how this is playing out socially. Um, we have a lot of well-intentioned students at our elite schools who want, are all in favor of economic equality and all the rest of it. Um, but in point of fact, they look down heavily on the people in the lower classes. They actively despise them. I don't know if this language will work for you. The people who go to Whole Foods, they're the right kind of people. If you go to Cracker Barrel or McDonald's, you're not the right kind of people, and you're a subject of scorn and mocking. Um, so <clears throat> there really are increasing social and economic inequalities in our culture in America, they're really quite visible with this contempt by the elite for the people on the bottom. Going back to Robert Putnam and his town in Ohio, he's like, that town is not the same anymore. The rich people have moved across, they're still in the town, but they've put themselves in an enclave almost with a fence. They've got their private schools, their kids go to that. The people on the other side of the track are not at all part of the same community. They're left to flounder in their own problems with no compassion on the other side. Okay, all right. 
So the second thing that uh, Pope Francis was worried about was exploitation. If you're going to live in a society that thinks that we're all basically individuals, and if you think the main path to happiness is wealth, and if you also think that the main reason you want wealth is to create these social distinctions so that you come out on top, um, it is not going to be very surprising at all if at least a few of you do less than admirable things to get that wealth. You're going to start doing things that exploit or harm other people. Um, I always love to use this example. There's a tremendous book by Natasha Dulshaw, who's an anthropologist, um, called Addiction by Design. It's a study of the uh, video gaming industry in Las Vegas. We've got these poker machines. You guys seen those things? Okay. Some genius figured out the way to make a killing in this market. So what they do is uh, they design these machines to be addictive. And they're only addictive to about 10% of the, their customer base. But what they do is when you go into one of those casinos, it's like a labyrinth. It's very hard to figure your way out once you get in. There are no signals about time. There's no clocks. There's no windows. You're meant to get lost in time and space in there. Um, they encourage you to have a customer loyalty card to put into the machine and they track whether you're winning or losing and if you're in danger of losing they run up to you with more drinks more freebies to keep you at the machine they might even ch chip in another hundred chips or whatever to keep you going and the whole thing oh and then they make it so that if you tap out at zero you can conveniently get into your bank account and get more money and the whole industry rests on 10% falling into that trap and being extincted. The business model is to drive the customers to zero cash balances. Okay. That's exploitation of the customers and their weaknesses for the sole purpose of making a lot of money. And just to be clear, if they did the model on, well, if most people like gaming, they can take it or leave it. If that was their only customer base, they would not make money. They would not stay in business. Okay. Um, all right. So... Yeah, taking this all together, I'm going to read this paragraph. If we grant that all else equal more is better, along with a background assumption that society is just a contract that serves individuals, and throw in the human tendency to use material wealth to mark out invidious social distinctions, we have a recipe for people actively pursuing excessive wealth, actively trying to create more inequality, and in doing so, they are more than likely to subordinate humane considerations to the profit motive. Um, okay. So just some implications of this analysis. Um, as we look at rising inequality, which has been a trend in the West for 20 or 30 years now, and I know in the Europe there's a lot of government measures to try to keep it down, um, but it is, it is a growing trend. Um, it would be a mistake, I think, to just look at economic forces, although they're certainly there. I think we need to at least ask the extent to which the culture has shifted in a way that makes it possible or give people permission to pursue wealth in this way. Um, so what do I have in mind here? In the wake of the financial crisis, which certainly was an exhibit of rapacious wealth seeking for no good purpose, um, the financial sector had grown almost double in terms of size of overall GDP over the preceding 10 or 20 years. Um, New York Times ran an op-ed by a guy who had been at Goldman Sachs his whole career, and he says, I am leaving now. He says, the culture at Goldman Sachs has changed. When I started Goldman Sachs, the job, the culture was about helping our clients invest their money wisely so they could have nice and decent retirements. We were there to serve our customers. 
It says, for the past 10 or 15 years, the culture has changed so that now our job is to rob our customers as much as we can get away with, to set them up as marks, put them in assets we know are going to fail, and make a profit off of that transaction. That's a big part of the dynamics that led to that crisis. Um, so when I was in college in the 1980s, early 1980s, people wanted to be doctors and lawyers if they wanted to be ambitious and successful. Those are careers about helping people. They wanted to be engineers. I met an engineer in here somewhere. Um, okay. Overwhelmingly over the last 20 or 30 years, at least in the United States, the ambitious college kid wants to be in finance. They want to go to Wall Street and make a killing. Michael Lewis wrote a book called The Big Short about everything that's wrong and liar's poker prior to that. And he says, the tragedy of my books is that I got a ton, a ton of letters from desperate Harvard and Yale students wanting to know how they could get in on the game, okay, how they could do that. So the culture has changed, and I think we need to think about why that's happening. Um, okay, the second point I think is really important is that a lot of people who look at the rising economic inequality say, well, what we need to do um, to get over this problem is we need to make sure that people from the lower economic, socioeconomic strata have a chance to get to the top. So we need to make sure that college admissions are fairer and have more room for people from the, these other backgrounds. Okay. That seems like a nice way, like let's have, make sure there's a quality of opportunity and that's the way we're going to address our concerns. Uh, what I want to point out is that that actually doesn't fix the problem at all. It would be very good for the poor young girl in a downtrodden sector of American society who has talent to be able to have access to you know, a high, you know, high quality college degree and go on to become a neurosurgeon. That's clearly a good thing for that girl. But it doesn't do anything about the problem that there's going to be so many people who have jobs that require college education. There's still going to be a lot of janitors and there's still going to be a lot of people who fix your cars and so on and so forth. And if we maintain this invidious distinction thing, there's still a problem, right? So opening up the access to the higher ranks to everybody is not the same thing as dealing with the fact that the people who are in the top rank are treating everybody else in a way that's not consistent with a good Christian life. So there's a guy named Matthew Crawford who has a tremendous book called Shop Classes, Soul Craft, who offers you a very beautiful take on the real value of blue collar type work. Uh, the guy who's fixing your HVAC machine when it breaks down has to be really smart and creative in his work, he deserves dignity and respect that he's not typically given. Okay, now none of this, my last point, none of this is to be dismissive of proposals to redistribute income, uh, which are harder arguments to make in the United States than they are here. Um, the law can function as training wheels and might signal uh, a sense that we want to open up space where people are start to make gestures at least in terms of social solidarity and all of the rest. Um, but I think that unless we push on the cultural front, those other mechanisms I described are going to win the day. So I would say the churches need to work harder on becoming more economically, socioeconomically diverse. Um, I was really gifted with the chance of being converted into a parish that happened to have quite a bit of diversity. I went, <clears throat> my parish had doctors and lawyers and professors. It also had the guy who was the janitor at the school and the guys who were the painters and the carpenters. And it was just a more deeply, it was just a, it's one of those deeply knit communities where those distinctions went away. Um, the parish council leader was my janitor at, at Oxford. Actually, it was the gardener. Okay. Um, we, in this room, Trinity College, I guess, is a pretty 
refined. We need to stop thinking solely in terms of what we can do for them. Okay, we need to figure out a way to build that community and hear the wisdom and intelligence and all the rest of it that you have in other parts of the socioeconomic ladder. Um, we, this is us, we need to start thinking about conferring status on something other than just pure wealth. Right? You can imagine a society in which status is conferred based on who has a noble character, things like that. Um, and we need to be wary of rhetoric that suggests that economic inequality is primarily about money and primarily about income and wealth. When the real problem, um, and, and arguing that the real problem is that rich people have too much of it, that risks distracting us from the social ills that are in desperate need of addressing, at least in America. Thanks for listening to this lecture on the Thomistic Institute podcast. The generosity of people like you makes this podcast possible. If you enjoy these talks, please consider showing your support at www.thomisticinstitute.org slash donate. Your donation of even a dollar helps us reach more college students and many others with the powerful truths of the faith, and it ensures that we can keep publishing top-notch lectures on this podcast. Thanks a lot.